Let me pray for us, and then we will look at these old, old words written down so long ago for our behalf. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are alive and that all of our hopes find their fulfillment in you. And so, God, I, I pray that even as we look at these ancient words today, God, I pray that they wouldn't just be uh, black words on white pages, but they would be words of life, a message to each one of us here. God, that you would use these things to change us, to transform us, show us who we are, show us who you are, and show us your incredible plan to bring hope and renewal into our lives and into our world. We ask you to do that, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen. Is Easter really enough? Is Easter really enough? So I was, I was 12 or 13 at the time. Uh, I grew up out uh, kind of in the country, surrounded by forests and fields. Uh, and so I spent most of my, my childhood uh, either damming up the creek, or crick as it was appropriately called, uh, or uh, wandering the woods or setting things on fire. Uh, and this, this one particular afternoon, I was out uh, enjoying myself with a bunch of uh, old bottle rockets, unsupervised, of course, and it was, it was after harvest, and so the neighbor's field was dry. I mean, like, really dry. Like, I cannot, I cannot overstate how dry this field was. And when the fire first started, my first thought was, cool! Like, I got, I got fire, and I've got fireworks. Like, this is going to be a good day. 30 years later, I can still feel the heat on my face. It didn't ever actually get quite this bad, but this is, that's how I imagine it. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad, but that's in my mind, my child mind, right? That's, that's what I see. So let me, let me give uh, a little scope here, because like I mentioned the field was dry, okay? You, you, get, you got that. Uh, but that's, that's, that is essentially how I remember. Let me give a little scope. So here's the property I grew up on, a little, little Google, Google Earth. That's, that's where it was. Uh, zoom out a little bit. Okay, a little bit more. What do you get a feel for the burn radius here? Okay, so uh, essentially we're talking about the entire Midwest, or actually more importantly, on the bottom end of the screen is actually the little tiny country church that my dad was a pastor at. Uh, so all of this would have been potentially like, you know, up for, up for grabs here, just on the other side of the field. So like I remember so few details from my childhood, just so you know, but this one is like burned into my brain. But even as I, you know, lost control of this fire, I still wasn't ready to uh, tell my mom. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't that desperate, right? And so instead I said to my, my little sister, she's like five at the time, her name's Rachel. I'm going to see her later on today. I've not forgiven her yet for all of this. Uh, but I said to her, like, okay, Rachel, don't tell mom. Sneak in the house and bring water. <laughs> like, this is, this is my plan, people, okay? This is what I have figured out. And so, uh, you know, she goes in, and, and I, but I have a sense of relief. Okay, the help is coming. Like, it's going to be, okay, she's going to bring water. And so I'm just kind of, like, stomping out the flames and trying to kick the dirt and, you know, do those other kinds of things. And when she returned, though... Minutes later, she brought me, like, not a pitcher of water or a jug of water or even, like, a normal human-sized glass of water. She, she literally brings me this. <laughs> like, the smallest glass of water you have ever seen in your entire life. My mom actually gave me this a few years ago, uh, I guess as a memento or a power move. Uh, it's probably manipulative. I'm not really sure. Uh, 
But like I looked at it, like there's no way. Like at that moment, like there's, there's, no, there's no chance, right? Hope is completely lost. There's no way this is possibly going to be enough. And if I'm completely honest, there are times when I think about Easter and I think about our world, the mess around us and within us, and think, is, how could it possibly be enough? Because maybe, maybe similarly, you, you look around our world, right? And you think about, you know, Russia or China. Or you look around our, our country and you think about political turmoil or rising inflation. Or you look at your life, right? And you look at the, the relationships, maybe some broken relationships or, or illness or pain. Or, or you look within, right? Inside and you see regret or anger or loneliness. And we wonder, is it going to be enough? And so we, we look to God I mean, maybe, maybe some of us do, right? You look to God and you, you know, like he promises to put the fires out. The ones around you and within you. He promises to somehow make it right in your life. And then he hands you this. The smallest glass of water you've ever seen. And you think, okay, God, really? Is this going to be enough? Is Easter going to be enough? And of course, by Easter, I don't mean Cadbury eggs and jelly beans, even though they are surprisingly satisfying, right? I don't, I don't mean simply a nice church service and spring dresses, not today, but other, other, other Easters, right? Or, or, or a ham lunch, like all these things that we kind of put around it. That's not, that's not what I mean by Easter. I mean a cross and an empty tomb. A, a Jewish carpenter slash rabbi on the other side of the globe 2,000 years ago, executed, and then alive again. Is that going to be enough for what you need and for what our world needs? Now, thankfully, we're not the first people to ask this, right? In fact, even, even right away, like even in the first century, we see people asking these same kinds of questions, wrestling together with us. And so if you have a Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We heard, we heard some of this passage read for us just a moment ago. If you don't own a Bible, uh, especially one in a modern translation, we'd love to give you one. We have a couple of them sitting at the communion tables. You can grab them uh, on your way out today. We'd love to be able to do that. But turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's in the New Testament. Uh, now, 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest writings of the New Testament, okay? It's very, very early on. It's written by the Apostle Paul, who saw the risen Jesus. And he wrote this letter only about 20 years or so after the first Easter, which means there are still eyewitnesses alive, right? People who saw and witnessed, who experienced this, this miracle. Even so, there in the church at Corinth, doubt was seeping in. We're not alone, people, okay? If, if you have trouble believing this stuff, like, you are in good company. And they needed to know, is Easter really enough? Now, big surprise, Paul says yes, okay? If you're wondering where this is going, that's, that's where it's going, okay? He, he answers their question, and he answers ours, I think in three ways in particular. That Easter is enough for our faith. It's enough for our failure. And it's enough for our fear. Faith, failure, and fear. So first, first Paul says Easter is enough for our faith. Because Paul, he wants us to have faith that this actually happened. Like in history, on planet Earth, dead guy started living again. 
And if it, if it didn't happen, I mean, Paul makes it really clear in this. If it didn't happen, we're just wasting our time. Like, what are we doing here? Like, this is, this is as stupid as this, right? What we're, it's, it's all just an act. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. It's, it's absolutely futile. It's meaningless. Like, just go have lunch already. You should have skipped this and gone right to the Easter egg hunt, right? That every, every church service is a facade. Every funeral I've ever done is a lie. And we are simply grasping onto hope where there is none. Go in peace. That's what Paul's getting at. Look, look at verse, verse 14. If this is not true, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In verse, verse 17, he says it again a little differently. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's empty. It's meaningless. If it didn't happen, if Jesus is still dead, like we might as well try putting out a raging fire with a shot glass. This is less stupid than that, which is why it's so important. Paul starts this chapter where he does. Look at verse 3. So go back and kind of we'll walk through a little bit of this together. This is why he starts here. He says, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, the reason I think it's important to start there is because I think we sometimes assume, arrogantly, that people back then... These people are so stupid. Like they're so superstitious. They would just believe anything. We, we kind of we do that, don't we? we? We think this, well, this is resurrection. Like they, they probably just could have swallowed this whole. But like think about that. Think how arrogant that is. Like there's no precedent for this. Dead people stay dead. Like you don't have to be born in the 21st century to, to know that. Like this is, this is something absolutely radical. And so Paul, he knows he's got to make his case. This is why he points out all of these eyewitnesses, this long list of people. He's like, go ask these. If you don't believe me, go ask them. So he starts with, with Cephas, right? That's Peter. Then he goes to the, the 12 disciples and 500 all at once. And again, he says, most of them are still alive. That's Paul's way of saying, like, go, go ask them. Like, if you don't believe what I'm saying, go ask them. He's inviting skeptics to do their own research. Yeah, okay, but didn't they want it to be true? Is that right? I mean, the prevailing belief of the Greeks and Romans, for example, was that actually at that time was that the body was bad, that the goal of humanity was to escape our bodies, like to be, be freed of this body. And so the idea of Jesus rising bodily would have completely thrown off their cultural assumptions. They had no category for something like this. And for the Jewish people, like they had no category for one person rising from the dead. Like, they believed in some resurrection coming at the end, but one person right now, I mean, just no category. And the fact that they actually end up worshiping Jesus, like, unless he's really God, they were committing the worst crime imaginable for them. All because they believe something happened that day. Press, press in a little bit further, because if you think about the disciples who are mentioned here, like, when, when Jesus was arrested... They fled in terror. I mean, Peter even denied who Jesus was, right? 
And then a few days later, they can't stop talking about Jesus. So much so that all but one of the 12 are murdered, right, for their belief in resurrection. How do they move from cowardice to bravery? And who, who of us here would die for something if you knew it to be a lie, right? Or if you were unsure of its truthfulness? All because they believed Jesus was actually alive, that something happened that day. Yeah, but didn't at least the disciples want it to be true? Well, I, I seriously doubt James did. I mean, I love that, I love that uh, Paul mentions him by name here. He calls James out. You guys know who James is? So James is, he's like Jesus' little brother, his half-brother. And uh, throughout, like, Jesus' life when he was still alive, like, none of his, none of his brothers, his half-brothers, none of them believed that he was the Messiah. So think about that. Like, they had to make some awkward, like, family gatherings or something, right? They, they, didn't, they didn't believe that it was possible, you can't, you can't blame them. I mean, who wants to believe that your brother is the son of God, right? And yet, after the resurrection, James believes. He actually even writes part of the New Testament. Like, let, let me just like, ask, like, what would it take for you to start believing that your brother was God? Have you met my brother? He's also coming over for lunch today. He's not God, let me tell you. <laughs> What would it take? Something had to happen. And then don't forget about Paul. I mean, Paul is the most unlikely convert of them all. He hated, he even says that, like, he hated Jesus. He hated the, the early Christians. He did everything he possibly could to stop the Christian movement from starting. So years tried to destroy it. What would it take for Paul to believe? Listen, I don't, I don't believe in the resurrection because of the warm fuzzies I get at Easter. I don't believe in the resurrection because I really want it to be true, even though I certainly do. I don't even believe simply because the Bible tells me so. I believe because these people saw it. They actually saw it, and then they, they wrote it down for us, and then they changed the world around them as a result of it because something happened that day. And so Paul is saying here that, that you, you can believe it. That Easter, as small as it may sometimes feel, it is enough for your faith. It's enough. Well, enough for what? Like, what, what good is it for? Like, what are the raging fires in your life and mine that God intends to put out with these cool waters of resurrection? Well, all of them. Like, all the fires. All of our failure and all of our fear. This is where we go next. The next thing here, Easter is enough for our failure. Enough for our failure. See, Paul makes it clear in this chapter as, it, as the words continue uh, that there, there are really two primary enemies, failure and fear, sin and death. So first we need to talk about sin, which I'm sure you're really excited about. Like, that's why you came to church today. You want to hear about sin. But we all know that sin is a problem, don't we? Like you, don't, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't even have to necessarily call it sin. Maybe that's something you, you can't really, maybe you, you don't prefer to do. And yet we know that it's a problem, right? A war that targets civilians. Racism, human trafficking, 
rape, sexual assault, like you, you name it. Maybe, maybe well, I don't, I don't do any of that, okay, so I'm okay, right? I'm, I'm, I'm one of the good ones, right? But then, like, look a little bit deeper. Have you, have you followed the, the recent news stories over the, really the last couple of years about the, like, the shocking increase in road rage? You following this? It was in the Times again this morning. Like, that, like the pandemic, like, set off this, like, over and over, like, this incredible amount of road rage. We're so angry. And maybe you're like, well, that's, that's not me, right? And we're all, you know, Kansas drivers, so it's probably, we're probably safe. We just, you know, bottle that rage deep down. So maybe that's not you, but look, look deeper. Francis Spufford, uh, in his book, Unapologetic, why despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. I love that subtitle. Here's his definition of sin. It's one of my favorites. He says, sin is the human propensity to mess things up. And he goes on and describes it like this. He says, what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's. And so even just ask yourself, when is the last time you've done something or you've said something, right? You yelled at your kids again. You went to those websites again. You had one too many drinks again. You gossiped again. Like whatever it is like on your list of things that you really just don't like about yourself, but you, you did it again and then you, you stand in front of the mirror again and you, you tell yourself, I'm never doing that again. And then in the back of your mind, you're like, well, that's what I said last time, right? And the best our world can do in this moment, these moments, is say, well, that's just part of who you are. You have to accept yourself. But you know better. You don't, you don't like that part of yourself, right? You don't need self-acceptance. You need forgiveness and change. You need someone to put out the fires of your own regret and self-destruction. Friends, this is what Easter is for. Look, look again, verse, verse 3, right? Because Paul, he's getting at the idea that it's, it's enough. He says, Christ died for our sins. That's, that's what this is about, right? It's, it's about healing us from our brokenness, our rebellion against God, bringing us back to God. In verse, verse 17, he said, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The implication, if he has been raised, that we're not, we're not dwelling in them anymore. And then go all the way to verse 56, kind of the culmination of what he's talking about here. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus sees your failure. All of it. And I think, I think we, we, if we recognize that, I think we then picture Jesus. He's like angry with us. He's got a frowny face. He's scowling at us. But the reality is if, if, if you're with him, if you're his, Easter means... Jesus is always glad to see you, that he's, he is delighted in you. He, and he, know, he knows your brokenness. He knows the places that he's, he's working on you to, to grow and to change. And yet his, his face lights up every time you walk in the room because he just can't wait to be with you, that he delights in you. And you may be ashamed of yourself, but he's not ashamed of you, and he will never be. And those places in your life, you have them, I have them, where you would do anything that, if you could just go back, right? Those words, if you could just, if you could just take them back without failure, you can't. 
But those are exactly the places Jesus wants to meet you, forgive you, and make you whole. Because Easter is enough. And finally, Easter is enough for our fear. For our fear. What are you afraid of? It's kind of a long list, isn't it? I mean, I don't even know where to begin. And and every fear, I think if we're completely honest, culminates in in death, at least least to some extent, right? Because death is the ultimate reminder that everything ends, unless Easter, right? But, like, think about that. Every, Every relationship, everything you love, right, finally goes into the grave with you, right? Unless Easter. Every success, every hope, every taste of beauty and joy, every bit of meaning you hold onto, it all ends. And then you're forgotten. And I think that, that last one is a really hard one for us to get around because we're like, man, no, people love me. They're going to remember me. Like, I matter. Like, but how many of us in this room know our great-grandparents' first names? Some. Yeah, I know. There's some, some of you, right? But most of us don't, Right? Like, we've already forgotten them. And like, like, just to put that in perspective, that means your grandkids, those kids you pour into and adore and they adore you, their kids won't even know your name. So enjoy your Easter egg hunt later today. <laughs> Leo Tolstoy, uh, the great novelist, I love Tolstoy, he, he agonized over this fear. Listen to what he says. He says, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man and woman, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. What will come of, my, of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my life? Why should I love? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And Paul says, yes, actually. Yes, there is. Verse verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, meaning he, he goes first, we come later. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, right, the first human, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So I've been planning my funeral. I mean, not really. Sort of. I'm 42. I'm healthy, okay? But I'm kind of a dark person. I like to burn fields for fun. So um, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I've, I've given, I've not really planned it. I've just given Kelly one demand, my wife. Uh, one demand for how it's got to end. Like there's one song in particular. Whatever, whatever happens leading up to like I want it to close with this, this one song. And you, you guessed it. Johnny Cash, of course. Some of you saw it coming. It's, it's one of the last songs they'd ever recorded. And when you, when you listen to it, like you can... Like, he sounds like he's on his deathbed, if you're completely honest. Like, it, it's, you listen, and it sounds like death is winning, right? And, and the reality is, that's, that's where we live, right? You and I, many of, many of you, many of us, we feel daily like death is winning. You feel it all around us. And if you're in that place today in particular, like, let us, let us carry that with you. That is a hard place to be. We want, a place, we want to be a place of comfort and hope and healing for you. 
Because my, my soul cries out with Johnny Cash. I love, I love these, these lyrics. Ain't no grave can hold this body down. Ain't no grave can hold, and he sounds like, I mean, it sounds like the grave is like gripping him, right? Ain't no grave can hold this body down. When the trumpet sounds, I'm going to rise right out of the ground. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. Now, Johnny Cash might not be your thing. It's okay. I don't understand why, but I, I get it. But are you familiar with, with Jane Markowski, Nightbird? Does that name any, ring any bell? Uh, she was famous for about 30 seconds. Uh, this, this past June, uh, she became an instant worldwide success for her performance on America's Got Talent. Uh, two days later, her song, It's Okay, was at the very top of, of iTunes uh, song, songs. And when she introduced, so you can, you can watch it. Somebody sent it to me uh, earlier this week or maybe last week. Uh, and, and when she introduced herself to the judges, she says this song is about, about my last year. And the judges, like, they, they press in. Like, they want to know more. And she pretty reluctantly tells them that she's been dealing with cancer. That's her words. And you can tell on the judges' faces. Like, they just don't even know how to handle that, right? Okay, here we are in this, this spot. And you're telling, telling us, and say, are you okay? Right? Like, is the cancer gone? And she's, she's like, well... I mean, she's, she says that she is okay, but it's clearly not okay, right? And she sweetly tells them that she still has some cancer in her lungs, spine, and liver. 2% chance of living. And then she sings this incredible song, It's Okay. Like, go, go listen to it later. If you haven't heard it, if you've not watched that video, go look at it. She sings, It's Okay. And, like, even, like, Simon Cowell is crying, and, like, everybody's crying. Like, I'm crying. I didn't even want to like this. I don't like this show. It's like, but I'm, like, bawling in this moment watching this. She wins the golden ticket, which apparently is, like, a really big thing on the show. I don't know. But you get the idea. And then everybody lives happily ever after, right? Jane died in February. Age 31. And it's not Okay. Death is the enemy. And it snuffed out her beautiful life so young. How could she possibly sing? It's okay. Like, is that just like blind optimism? Naive hopefulness? Like, is it, is it just as stupid as this? Like, it's just empty nothing for her? No. Because Jane believed in resurrection. And as a follower of Jesus, Easter was enough for her. Enough for her faith, enough for her failure, and enough for her fear. 